Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am your host, and I am here in Los Angeles, California, and I am joined from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, home to Donald Trump, president of the United States and his entire um, crime family of associates. Uh, We have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School, and we have Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund. Um, And ladies, I would like you to help me with a problem here uh, to to start things out. Uh, I've been a little bit confused and troubled by um, this... uh, 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 incident of uh, Representative Omar of Minnesota, uh, who made a tweet saying it's all about the Benjamins, implying that um, uh, APAC, uh, the Israel lobby, had essentially bought control of the Congress. And this led to a lot of pushback, saying that this was an anti-Semitic trope, including from Nancy Pelosi. And subsequently, Representative Omar has apologized for this But I worry that there's something bigger afoot here. And the bigger thing is that um, there is a generational shift occurring in U.S. views towards Israel. And in this generational shift, if you go down and you look at polls, the younger you get, the, the, the less natural support there is for Israel. That's translating into different kinds of views, particularly within the Democratic Party and parts that are responsive to younger people, but also less represented communities. And so there is this kind of effort to say, if you are not in support of Israel, then you are anti-Semitic. And and I'm oversimplifying it for the point of argument, but essentially the, the, the people who have enjoyed almost reflexive support for Israel are trying to discredit having a more open, diverse discussion about Israel, which seems to me to be a mistake. But I just thought I'd bring both of you in to get your comments on it. Rosa. Yeah, and I don't actually think that there's anything new about this, David. Um, I think that it has been true, unfortunately, for at least a couple of decades that even the mildest criticism of Israeli government policy uh, can get you jumped on for being anti-Israeli and anti-Semitic. Um, and I think we've all experienced that. I'm sure, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've been called a self-hating Jew many times. Uh, I I got called much worse than that. Much, much worse. Yes. Um, So so and I think that that, as I said, I don't think there's anything new about that. Um, um, I know my brother who has written a book about uh, Palestinians uh, is constantly getting accusations of anti-Semitism and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, As you say, you can, you know, equating Israeli policies, which are largely fairly horrible uh, with anti-Semitism, um, 
uh, or with somehow with Jewishness uh, is a is a terrible mistake. You know, the government policy and and the culture and history and religion of a people are not the same thing. Um, that being said, I, I also think that undeniably uh, there has been an upsurge in visible, genuine anti-Semitism in this country uh, and in other countries, and it's coincided with the upsurge in in uh, visible forms of racism and visible forms of anti-Muslim sentiment and visible forms of xenophobia uh, in the in the Trump era. You know, there have been an upsurge of people painting swastikas on synagogues and Jewish cemeteries. Uh, Etc. And the, the attack on the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, and that and that's quite frightening. And the, and these things can be true at once. Obviously, you know, the, there can there can both be a continued and very toxic tendency to label as anti-Semitic people who are legitimately critical of Israeli policies and an upsurge in genuine and frightening anti-Semitism. And I, I think, unfortunately, that's where we are right now. But I mean, you know, the, it, you you bring up a good point there, you know. And Evelyn, you know, we, the, the 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 sight of the Republican Party expressing outrage at the anti-Semitism, or 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 a potentially anti-Semitic, influ, influenced comment of a freshman Republican, a Democratic Congresswoman, when the President of the United States defends. And is actively supported by Nazis, promotes anti-Semitic George Soros tropes all the time. I mean, yeah, are we supposed to buy this crap? It's totally hypocritical. Remember, also during the campaign, he had the the Star of David on the money, like it was one of these campaign, um, I don't know, pieces of literature that he was handing out. I mean, it was so blatantly oh yeah, anti-Semitic. Uh, you know, this is. Um, it's this is really a problem because I, I feel like the, you know, some Republican operative decided, you know, how are we going to use these two new Muslim, you know, Americans who were in Congress, especially the one wearing the scarf, you know, um, uh, because she's she's visibly right um, showing her faith. Um, how are we going to use them to our advantage and peel off, you know, support from the Democrats? And that's what I see this as a really cynical play. Having said that, um, there are some real underlying political issues that are troubling. One, under President Obama, the government of Israel, and so here, to some extent, our colleagues here in America and APAC found themselves in a, between a rock and a hard place because the Israeli, and they continue to be there, because the Israeli government led them to this place by really actively uh, taking on a full frontal assault, in, in essence, politically against President Obama, they started to create a real rift uh, in terms of how Israelis themselves regarded Republicans versus Democrats and the support that they got from the United States. And it doesn't take very long for rank and file Democrats and voters to pick up on this. You know, I mean, just see how President Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu treated President Obama under the uh, two terms that, and especially towards the end, that Obama um, held office. He was absolutely disrespectful. So those who were, you know, loyal Democrats and who loved President Obama obviously took note. And the Israeli government has 
done nothing. In fact, they've exacerbated it since President Trump came into office because they've been absolutely pro-Trump, again, largely driven by uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu himself. But none of this helps Israel because you don't want a, a U.S. policy that's partisan when it comes to Israel. You want a broad bipartisan support for Israel. And then on top of that, you have the demographic changes. You have younger people who don't remember World War II, who don't personally certainly remember the Holocaust and maybe don't even know anyone who, who remembers it, right? I mean, this is, this is going to be a reality. You also have as Muslim Americans become empowered, the other side of the debate, right, what to do about the Palestinians and the human rights uh, that they have suffered, the human rights offenses that they have suffered because of their situation, you know, it gets highlighted more. And so there's a debate that isn't, I don't, I don't think it's being, it, it, there's, we're seeing the beginning of something that could be an unhealthy debate. And I think we need to go back to educating Americans across the board. And, you know, I've said this also to APAC colleagues, you know, that they're, they're in danger. They're, they're, the Israeli government is endangering their efforts and endangering, I think, frankly speaking, relations between the two countries. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you said, you know, you hopefully you'll have a bipartisan support for Israel. I don't hope for that. Uh, I, who had, my father was a Holocaust survivor, scapee, and, you know, we lost a lot of family in the Holocaust and have a lot of interest in, you know, uh, you know, the well-being of Jews and, and hopes for, you know, the idea of the state of Israel at, at any rate. Don't think that the state of Israel is entitled to bipartisan support from the United States. I think the state of Israel is entitled to the United States debating its national interests in the way that we debate anything else. And the fact that there are actually Muslim women in Congress who might have a different view, or they're Muslim Americans who might have a different view, or they're just simply people who are repulsed and disgusted by the behavior of the Israeli government vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, suggests we need a much more robust debate. And I, you know, not only is it hypocritical for the president and his party to go after this congresswoman uh, for her statement, which she has subsequently retracted, and the Democratic Party renounced in a way the Republicans have not renounced the statements of 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 Trump and and those close to him. But you know, above and beyond that, it worries me that we're going to get into this situation where, uh, and the Democrats may put themselves in the situation too where you know, you're not allowed to speak ill of Israel and that there is a kind of a red line, you know, and it's not politically acceptable to speak the truth about this country. And that reminds me, Rosa, of the situation with Saudi Arabia right now, where mm -hmm. you, you know, the Saudis have said, you know, this is a red line, you must not speak of our leaders. And it's like, and, and by the way, our president and his toady of a secretary of state are going along with that to the point that they are ignoring Magnitsky Act requirements that they respond to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in a certain way, you know. But they're, the, the the Saudis are saying, "Sorry, you just this is a line in our relationship. If you start getting critical, we're going to have a real problem with you." What is up, Rosa? You know, David, I think that uh, one of the slogans that used to be used by mothers against drunk driving should equally apply to foreign policy. Remember the old 1980s. Uh, anti-drunk driving campaign. The slogan was friends don't let friends drive drunk. You know, I think that this applies to foreign policy too, you know, that friends don't let friends 
abuse human rights. Friends don't let friends make stunningly stupid mistakes. That part of the job of being an ally uh, is to say to your friends sometimes, hey, that's that's not a good idea. That's bad. You shouldn't do that. We're really upset. You know, and, and the idea that anything should be off limits between allies, I think, I think, you know, sort of undermines the very idea of what it means to be allies in the first place. I mean, we we don't want allies who are not interested in hearing anything that contradicts their official line. We want allies who a recognition that nobody's perfect. One of those values is a recognition that we all need help sometimes, we all make mistakes sometimes. So no, I, I think it's, I, you know, needless to say, uh, President Trump seems particularly drawn to leaders who take a my way or the highway approach. And if it's not my way, uh, in fact, it's, it's the highway of death approach. Um, so there's, no, there's nothing surprising here, but it's a, it's a very bad idea. Well, and you know, I think the flip side of that, Evelyn, is that we have plenty of allies to with whom we are close who have policies we don't agree with, uh, or we should at least have a debate about. You know, no one would argue that we shouldn't be debating whether Brexit is a good idea for Britain or not, even if the government of the Great Britain, um, you know, is in support of this absolutely insane policy. And similarly, there are plenty of people in the government, not the president, but others, who might take issue with the fact that, for example. Um, the Italians uh, are taking a, a horrible strategy of stance towards refugees, or the Hungarians are, or whatever. Right. I mean, we're we're allowed to have. Or that the Japanese are naively trying to negotiate with Putin over the disputed islands. Right, but I mean, the the point is, in all those relationships, we're allowed to, you know, we're we're expected to have differences. But in this special class of relationships, you know, they they fear it, and I think the reason they fear it is they're vulnerable because they've done something really wrong, whether it's the Saudis murdering Khashoggi or uh, laying waste to Yemen, uh, or it's the Israelis abusing the human rights of Palestinians and and denying them the right, right. to their own state, right? And also going beyond international agreements about settlements. We give, yeah, I mean, you know, just beyond international agreements, but also beyond international norms of behavior. Right. But the Israelis behave this way, by the way, in the United Nations all the time, where if anybody criticizes them, they're immediately accused of being, you know, anti-Semitic and it's awful and that you can't do that. Right. And it's like, you know, you want to, you know, be a nation, you got to play by the rules of the other nations, right? Well, and it just backfires because then when when nations or leaders or individuals are anti-Semitic, nobody pays attention anymore. So that's a really dangerous game to play. Um, yeah, I, I, I have to say I found this whole uh, attack on this representative to be really uh, unfortunate. Hopefully, when we get to 2020, we'll hear you know, Democratic candidates voicing sober, smart, thoughtful and partially critical uh, perspectives on policy towards Israel. Uh, yeah. I mean, it does, you can't help but note, Rosa, that it also, it's it's consistent with Trump's view of himself as somebody who, he keeps referring to himself as the best president ever. I work harder than the best president ever. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. You know, I work harder than any president. I brush my teeth longer than any president. I chew my food more often than any president. Yeah. I mean, 
he's 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 in a, a place, but he's he doesn't. Sick. Sorry. He he is sick. Um, if only he could be persuaded to you know to be in human rights more than any president, or champion honesty and integrity more than any president, rather than championing all the horrible things he usually chooses to champion. Well, he doesn't. I, I do he, think actually. So I wasn't. I, I was just just a comment on. I wasn't closely following um, uh, this this brouhaha over Representative Omar's uh, tweet. I sort of missed that one. And in the world of Twitter, as we know, you know, if you if you stop paying attention for twenty seven seconds, um, <laughs> you know, multiple cycles of memes pass you right by. Um, but but I do think that um, you know. There, I've been thinking this a lot because I think all of us have at one point or another uh, been told on Twitter that we're terrible people. Uh, and everybody, and, and I've been thinking about this. So, so, so she apologized, which seems appropriate, you know, and she apologized and she said, anti-Semitism's real and I'm grateful for my Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on this painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. And I, I actually think that American in American political culture, very much on the left as well as on the right, maybe even more on the left, that we have to get a little bit better at accepting people's imperfections and apologies and uh, at, at tolerating the fact that sometimes people are going to screw up. And more important than being a person who never screws up, never says anything ignorant, never says anything obtuse, never offends anybody, is being a person who can learn from your mistakes and who can be self-aware and who can, you know, listen to other people and, and hear, you know, you may not have meant it this way, but here's how it came across and be, be able to sort of go, oh, wow, I need to do something different. You know, that I think we're, we are often much too quick to just, you know, eviscerate people. Uh, and that's that's a bad characteristic. You know, we all have to get better at uh, being willing to let people apologize. I like that. Yeah, no, it's true. I, you know, the notion that people could somehow grow from political discourse by virtue of saying things, listening to other people's responses and evolving um, should not be quite as revolutionary as it is. But that begs the question. So if I could put Rose on the spot. So how do how do you think that applies to Governor Northam? Yeah, you know, um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard one, right? And and I I actually most of the media attention is focused on uh, the picture of uh, someone in blackface. Um, to me, the thing that was actually more shocking and surprisingly to me has received less commentary was the juxtaposition of somebody in blackface with somebody dressed up in a Ku Klux Klan outfit. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I actually find it, I find it plausible and forgivable that as a young man who grew up in the American South, uh, that Ralph Northam really didn't realize why and how deeply blackface was hurtful and offensive. Um, you know, I, I, I think that that's on that one. I feel kind of like, all right, you know, a lot of people knew then, but maybe you didn't, and mm -hmm. it's never too late to learn. And you're sorry, and okay. Um, I, what bothers me more is that, you know, in by 1984 or five, there was nobody who didn't understand that the Ku Klux Klan was not okay. That the juxtaposition of of a uh, uh, cruel conical representation of an African American with a 
representation of someone in a costume associated with lynchings and slaughter and terrorization of African-Americans. There's, I don't know how you, I don't know how you say, Oh, who knew about that one? And, yeah. and, you know, I'm not, I'm not thrilled with his response. Um, I'm, I don't think he has handled this particularly well. Um, so anyway, sorry, David, go ahead. That's a really good point. I was, though, though. Say, I was yeah. just thinking as you were talking and nobody's said this before, but you know, if 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 Northam had appeared wearing um, a big giant nose and little hair on the side of his, you know, uh, you know, curly hair like a uh, Orthodox Jew and dressed up as an Orthodox Jew or something, how long do you think his career would last? Well, you think it would be different? It would be instantly over. There were did the the, the organized outcry yeah, yeah. would be yeah it would he would it would be obliterated. There's no way he could survive that. I mean, Trump gets away with some of this stuff, but you know, the, you know, a, a governor. Can you imagine a governor? Oh yeah, he just dressed up as a stereotype of a Jew. Yeah, but but, yeah. but somehow people say, well, a lot of people did this about black people. You know, to me, I I just you know, to me, it's it's not forgivable. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's a really hard one. And I'm, I'm, I think if he did it today, obviously, it would be very different than doing it in the 1980s. Um, uh, I think that there are some, I think people are allowed to have learning curves in their lives, uh, and nations are allowed to have learning curves. Um, so that's why I say I'm in many ways, I'm, I'm much more troubled by his response now and in the immediate hours and days right after this came out that I am in some ways by what he did 30 years ago, which was, which was offensive and upsetting. But, but, you know, I think people get second chances. Um, I think he's in the process of blowing his second chance. Yeah. I also have to say people, people should get second chances. But it depends on what it is they want to do with their second chances. You know, if you're, you know, supposedly representing all the people of a state and you're in a political job and that state has a history of civil rights problems, maybe that's not the place you get to have the second chance. Or right. if you're, you know, representative of a Democratic Party that's yeah. supposed to be yeah. standing up right. against a Republican Party that is notably racist. Maybe you don't get that choice. Maybe you should go and be a car dealer or maybe well, you should go and write a book or something. Yeah, and if you really <laughs> care about the lesson, if you really understand why it's wrong, and I actually think Rosa makes a fantastic point. I mean, really, people should be much more outraged about the white figure in that in that photo. But the fact that he... I mean, the fact that he wants to hold on to power because he thinks he can fix it actually shows that maybe he hasn't quite absorbed the lesson because by being forced to resign, that actually probably would provide more hope to, you know, African-Americans that, that, that finally things are changing. And he can certainly, as a private citizen, do everything he wants, you know, to help address racism in Virginia. No, it's 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 there is a tremendous arrogance, a sort of form yeah. of well, you know, no one can do without me. I and I alone uh, uh, can lead the state forward. Um, um, I 
so I have to admit, during the uh, Virginia gubernatorial primary, I was a big supporter of his opponent, Tom Periello. Um, right. Uh, we know Tom. So, yeah, we all know Tom, and, and Tom is a terrific guy, and I'm, I'm quite sure that Tom didn't ever dress up in blackface. I certainly hope he didn't, but I, I'm inclined to doubt it because Tom has been a, uh, you know, an activist uh, for really his entire adult life. Um, so I can't help wishing that this had come out during the primary because I think Tom Periello would be governor of Virginia and not, not uh, Ralph Northam. Yeah. I, I think that needless to say, the, the problem in Virginia right now, there was this one moment where it sort of looked like there could be this beautiful solution, right? <laughs> Which when it was just Northam and you thought, okay, Ralph, step down, do the right thing. You know, say, you know, you're right. I, I, I am sad about this, but I guess I'm not the guy to leave Virginia right now. And I'm, I'm going to step down. And my, my good friend, uh, Democratic Attorney General, uh, Democratic uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax will therefore become governor. And oh, by the way, it just so happens that he's an African American. And symbolically, it would be very nice to have uh, the downfall of a white male governor over a racist image lead to the second African-American governor of Virginia being installed. Um, then, of course, you know, <laughs> um, everybody's skeleton started started popping out of closets. And we now have Justin Fairfax facing two allegations of sexual assault um, uh, and you know, we now have the attorney general, Mark Herring, who's third in the line of succession. Uh, oops, it turns out he used to wear blackface, too. Whoops. Um, so the next in line uh, is a Republican and the Republican Party in Virginia is really horrible and racist. You know, so so it's a little bit of a dilemma because uh, I, I, you know, my initial reaction was Ralph Northam should resign and it should be Justin Fairfax. Then my reaction was, well, maybe Justin Fairfax should resign. It'll be Herring. And then I was like, uh, uh oh, <laughs> what comes next here? So I'm well, not sure know, it's I have to say, I have, a, to have a Republican. I have a very unpopular view on this front, and that is that? they should all resign. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. It's popular. And then we get a Republican Democrat. Yes, and then we get a Republican let's governor. Well, well you then, then you the do. But who may be done even more damage. I understand, but principles matter. I think Al Franken should have resigned when he resigned under pressure. I think that there should be standards within the party. I think if you're going to stand up for the standards, you have to stand up for the standards. That's what happened with Representative Omar. Uh, I think, by the way, it's more likely at this point um, that the lieutenant governor, Fairfax, is going to have to resign um, than it is that Northam is. Uh, and then you're going to have the spectacle of the African-American having to resign and not the right. white guy. Um, right. But, which, but, is, but, which, which makes me think, where is the adult like supervision of these people? Like where, where I mean, Tom Perez or whoever's supposed to be you know, the adult, uh, Terry McAuliffe, who, who is it who can, who can say, hey, guys, listen, pull, pull yourselves together. You've all got to resign. Every, every leader in the Democratic statesman. Party, every leader said Northam had to resign. I know, but and, nobody apparently has the ability to make it stick. No, it's true, but you know. You know why? Because they're not, because Northam isn't running. Yeah, and, and. The problem, one, one problem with term limits, not, not necessarily. And, and, and Virginians seem divided and the African-American community in Virginia seems divided. And I don't know, maybe I'm being overly pragmatic, but as I said, I think that there does need to be some room for apologies. 
Uh, Northam himself may have blown his second chance, but for maybe for some of these other guys, I don't know. Uh, we have to see what what the facts seem to be in the coming days. But but I the having a Republican governor for Virginia at this point, I think, would be a complete disaster for the values that Virginia Democrats care about and the you know the Republican Party in Virginia uh, recently fielded a, a candidate. Um, who was explicitly racist and pro-Confederate. Right, right. You know, it is not it is not clear. I mean, at some point, I you know, David, it's easy to say, yeah, they should all resign. But it's not clear to me that it better serves the values of anti-racism uh, in Virginia I, to end up with a Republican governor for the next That's right. Years. And that's why I think the thing that should happen is that Fairfax should resign. Northam should appoint a better person as lieutenant governor, maybe Tom Periello. And then, and then he resigns. Yeah, that would be nice. Yes, that would be nice. I love that it, doable? David. That's doable. Oh my God, <laughs> that would great. be lovely. No, I think that actually is legally doable. Um, but you know, there's or, a bigger, some, yeah. There's a bigger problem here, and I didn't know how we got into domestic politics here, but why I not? Know, my fault. But 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 Rosa, how far is your home from? You know, a highway called the Jeff Davis Highway, and how far it is it? It is not called the Jeff Davis Highway anymore. That is not correct, Rosa. It no, no, no. Called... The street no. signs have now changed in Alexandria. Exactly. Check it out. Excuse me. In Alexandria, the street signs have changed, but not in Arlington. So oh, you are about a mile. You are about a mile from where it says the Jeff Davis Highway. Uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that Arlington hadn't changed oh their street God. signs. No, they have not. And there is a big Confederate statue in the middle of downtown Alexandria. And there are monuments galore to the Robert E. Lee family, Robert E. Lee, who is it? And there are 200 monuments to Confederates in Virginia. There's 600 in the country. There are 200 of them are in Virginia. Wow. Holy moly. Virginia has is a deeply racist state, and it tries to gloss over it because there's some people in northern Virginia who aren't like that. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson freed Sally Hemings when he died. But, you know, it's like this is this there's a problem that this is about is much bigger than these three guys. Yeah, okay. no, no, no question about that. Okay, so we so, talk so, about Saudi Arabia. I would. That's where I was. <laughs> that's where I was going with this in the first well, place. Well, but 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 David, there is a there is a point that relates to international issues here, um, which is that uh, um, many countries that have experienced massive human rights abuses have made at least some effort to grapple with them through prosecutions or through. Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, and you know, the, I'm not, I'm far from the first person to say it, but the U.S. in many ways has never fully recognized, fully reckoned, uh, or, or acknowledged, or come to terms with a a past in which American wealth and prosperity was built upon slavery and the systematic oppression of millions of human beings. And, and, and I think that here's an area where we actually have something to learn from quite a lot of other countries. And I don't mean to suggest that there's some sort of facile, simple solution of, you know, you have a truth commission and everybody ends up hugging, uh, and then we don't have to worry about racism or the legacy of slavery anymore. You know, it's clearly not that simple. Uh, but I always remember what uh, uh, Michael Ignatieff, uh, the Canadian politician and, and author, 
said about the South African Truth Commission. He said it didn't necessarily find the truth, but it narrowed the range of permissible lies. And I think that when it comes to states like Virginia, uh, you know, we need something like that because there are still all kinds of lies that are permissible in Virginia politics and permissible in many other parts of the Deep South. And one of those lies is that, you know, the Civil War uh, and waving the Confederate flag is about heritage, not hatred and so on. Um, and in fact, the, you know, the historical record shows that those monuments, they don't date from right after the Civil War. They date most for the most part from the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s when, you know, the fear of desegregation was rising uh, and, and, and mythology. Can I jump in, though? I, I want to link this to foreign policy because yes, I wrote a piece published, um, it might have been 2017, in The Hill, and it was on the need for to examine reparations. It was right before, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget the name of the congressman who then was um, got caught up in the Me Too, and so he lost his job, um, Conyers, John Conyers. But every Congress, uh, John Conyers would introduce a piece of legislation basically asking for a study by the executive branch of the potential for reparations. So basically the injustices that have been visited upon African-Americans over time, the persistence of racism and the possibility of reparations. And one of the things that I called for in this piece is somebody who obviously doesn't have much of a uh, pedigree when it comes to domestic politics, but I do have one when it comes to national security. And because of all of this Russia, Russian interference, which of course you know, was predated by Soviet interference, taking full advantage of our weaknesses, taking full advantage of our very sorry history and the continued injustices that uh, exist today. Um, you know, Russians and others can take advantage, use our social media and, and further divide us against one another, right? And weaken our democracy. And so it was sort of with that entree to the subject that I said, we ought to look at um, really, what can we do to better address the injustices, consider reparations? We should start with looking at the um, GI Bill. We had African-Americans serve in World War II. Many of them came home. They should have had the right to education, so tuition reimbursement, and also to help with mortgages. So there's a whole package under the GI Bill. Some of them were not, could not take advantage because of persistent racism, especially depending on where they were living. If they were living, for example, in some parts of Chicago where they had the, the red line laws where you couldn't actually get a mortgage, you couldn't actually buy a house. So um, things like that, there are small steps that could be taken now. And I do think it's high time for us to really look at this issue across the board. Well, all these issues. I mean, Rosa, in uh, uh, the long telegram, um, the last two paragraphs are, if we're going to defeat the Soviets, we have to begin at home. Our strength has to begin at home. Things, you know, not only does this give us strength around the world, but it, but to the extent to which we fail um, at home, it gives ammunition to our, our enemies. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I think that goes further, you know, to the extent to which we don't honor the rule of law, to the extent to which we suppress freedom of the press to the extent to which um, our president is allowed to get away with crimes uh, it opens the door to other places and 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 you know these things are not disconnected 
No, absolutely not. Um, and the, you know, the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, uh, and indeed even the Supreme Court's willing to, to at least end de jure segregation in Brown versus Board of Education, were directly related to Cold War awareness that the Soviets were using uh, American racism, Jim Crow laws and segregation uh, against us in international domain in terms of you know, successfully being able to say too many uh, people in various African countries in, in, in America, hey, do you trust the Americans? They think people like you should not be able to share the same drinking fountains as you. And, you know, that was a that was a compelling argument for, for many around the world. Uh, and that is in part what put pressure on the Johnson administration uh, and even even some of the Supreme Court justices uh, we're, we're clearly very aware of that. Um, I, so I think no question now as then, uh, when America abandons its commitment to human rights, when we suggest to the rest of the world that uh, not only we're no longer moving forward, but that we're perfectly happy to move backwards, we sabotage our own interests and we make it easier for our adversaries to gain adherence and support. So let me ask you a question on that. This subject's going to come as a big shock to you, given the nature of our conversation. But Saudi Arabia, um, uh, which we've been trying to get to for, you know, the past 30 minutes, we now have three minutes left. But um, the um, government of Saudi Arabia, of course, has said, you know, there's a red line. We can't talk about their leadership. But meanwhile, at the same time, you know, our intelligence community has come to the conclusion and foreign people sources have come to the conclusion that the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia was behind this murder of this American resident. And that should have triggered uh, action by this government under the Magnitsky Act. And the government just said, no, we're not going to do that. You know, and, and, and Pompeo went and made some remarks about, well, you know, if we discover something new, then we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. But this is also, this is, I mean, that's a law. The government, the right. White House is just ignoring the law. Now, Rosa, isn't that a constitutional crisis? Uh, I, I ask uh, Rosa this on every constitutional. <laughs> I know, it's great. Uh, it's definitely it's a, a constitutional, constitutional issue. If Congress wants to turn it into a constitutional crisis, which, mm -hmm. which frankly, on some level, they should, right? I mean, I mean, this has always been the case with when you get conflicts between branches of government, uh, the Supreme Court and other U.S. courts tend to take a pass and say it's a political question to get worked out politically. There's there's no there's no legal or judicial resolution to this. Um, but step one in a political conflict is for you know both branches to act like they care. And at the moment, uh, we're still waiting to see if Congress is actually going to step up. Um, you know, what Congress can do and what Congress has done in the past uh, is deny funding for various other efforts uh, as, a, as a tool to get the, if the administration is ignoring them, is ignoring legislation previously passed, you know, Congress has the ability to make the administration's life extremely difficult. Um, that tool is a blunter weapon in the age of Trump, since he seems perfectly willing to shut down uh, indefinitely in a fit of peak. Uh, but, you know, that's the tool. Um, during the 1980s, uh, when Congress refused to authorize any funding 
for the Nicaraguan Contras. That's what led us to, you know, Oliver North and various uh, dirty tricks uh, efforts to get around that. But the point is that there was something that they had to get around and it was a very significant barrier and it led to eventually indictments and some prison time, although not as much for as many people as it as it should have. Uh, so, so you know, yeah, yet another brick in the road on the path to constitutional crisis, but not quite there yet, David. Oh, but on the other hand, it does. And what I really, really want to know, I really, yeah. really want to know, is what is this business about Saudi Arabia and Jeff Bezos? That's really weird. Um, yes. Well, what is it, Evelyn? What is? Well, this? we don't really know. I mean, he intimated. I don't know if it was his letter or something verbal. He said that, you know, perhaps a foreign um, source was used to get the salacious pictures or the below-the-belt pictures of himself that he sent to his lover, Lauren Sanchez. The, the lawyers to David Pecker and AMI, so the National Enquirer, basically said, no, that's not the case. Actually, the person who gave them this information now, I don't know if this information includes, of course, the photos, but in any event, is someone known to both Ms. Sanchez and Jeff Bezos? Uh, it's possible that there was more than one source. It's possible that the brother- uh, And there's and a Sanchez, Daily Beast, there was a Daily Beast story and then several others that have suggested it was her brother. Correct, and his name is David Sanchez. And so it's possible that he he was the one who tipped off the National Enquirer, so AMI, the owner of National Enquirer, but it doesn't rule out the fact or the possibility that maybe they called their friends in Saudi Arabia and said, hey, you guys also have it in for Jeff Bezos. You know, why don't you see if you can use some of your, you know, state assets to get into his phone and get those photos. Now, I think it was the lawyer, again, for the National Enquirer, or somebody along the way said, well, there's no evidence of hacking of his phone. But in any event, it's possible. We don't, I don't really, I mean, it, I guess what's, what's interesting about it is, maybe let me just say that it's, that it's sort of plausible in this crazy world we live in, where you know, we have the administration fighting, or Donald Trump fighting literally, not just for his political life, but probably for his freedom. Um, against Robert Mueller and an investigation that involves certainly foreign interference by the Russians, but possibly also the UAE and Saudi Arabia, although maybe not quite as blatant and not directly the way they they interfered to help uh, Donald Trump become president. Nevertheless, there 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 are also the corruption allegations which are being dealt with, it appears, mainly in New York, maybe in Florida as well. But the ones pertaining to Saudi Arabia, I think, would be Washington, D.C., New York, the emoluments issues. There, the Saudis also, of course, are aligned with Donald Trump. <laughs> so it's it, it's not out of the realm of the possible that Saudi Arabia, you know, has an interest in 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 making sure the truth doesn't see the light. And of course, the Washington Post is one of the biggest purveyors of the truth to the American people today on both the issues of foreign interference politically and foreign interference through corruption. Um, well, that was a very good summary. And um, I, I, I hope Aunt Rosa had answered your question, although I don't think we know the full answer because um, uh, it's gonna take a little investigating where this info came from and the notion 
that somehow the, the, the AMI, which accepted all this money from the Saudis and did this weird supplement for the Saudis and, and, and so forth, um, uh, and, and whose manus relationship with the Saudis uh, also uh, uh, suggests that there, there are more shoes to drop. In any event, we've run out of time. And so uh, I uh, um, would like to thank Evelyn, and I'd like to thank Rosa. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. Uh, and I would like to encourage you to join us again sometime soon uh, or visit deepstateradionetwork.com and listen to our other podcasts, including Washington for Beautiful People or uh, National Security Magazine, which has gotten to be great and every week has somebody uh, spectacularly interesting on national security issues on it, um, uh, or reading some of the other content on the site or joining up and becoming a member. And if you haven't done that, why haven't you done that? That will help this process grow. It's not that expensive. It'll take about 60 seconds of your time, and it will bring you infinite joy and happiness, possibly also long life, although uh, scientific studies on that uh, are, are not yet concluded. Uh, in any event, thank you very much, and we will um, uh, talk to you again sometime soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.